We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 today. Going to be focusing specifically on verses 4 through 8, but I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 8 for context. Continuing our series called First Things, today we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together again. Lord, this is your word. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would teach us today. Holy Spirit, as you have inspired these words, we pray that you would illuminate them to our hearts and that you would be glorified in our minds and our hearts and in our worship together today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 19th century British historian and politician, Lord Acton, penned these famous words. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. If we were to look into the lives of the world's most powerful people in human history, it would be riddled with oppression and violence and injustice. Even those leaders that we have been taught to respect have skeletons in their closet, so to speak. But is power actually bad? Does power corrupt? Another 19th century thinker, Friedrich Nietzsche, believed that the desire for power was the main driving force in humans. Now, I don't find myself often agreeing with Nietzsche, but this does seem plausible to me. Maybe we wouldn't say that power is a main driving force in our lives, but even the desires for wealth, for influence, for authority, for leadership, and even fame, sex, and health can be part of a desire to exercise power over people and the world around us. Now, you may not think that you care about power, but I can assure you if there's an area in your life where you feel stuck, if there's an area in your life where you feel out of control or powerless, I can show you where there's a desire for more power. But is that a bad thing? Does power corrupt? See, power is what the disciples are after in this passage. Specifically, they're after political power. They want Jesus to restore the kingdom to Israel. See, it had been more than 400 years since Israel had been a sovereign nation at this time. 
and almost a thousand years before the glory days of the reigns of King David and King Solomon. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David one day that one of his sons would sit on the throne and reign forever. And yet here they were, almost a thousand years later, under Roman occupation. This son of David, the Messiah, the disciples believed to be Jesus. And at this point in the story, the disciples knew that Jesus had power. They had seen his power over the storms and the sea. They'd seen his power over sickness and demons. They'd seen his power over the laws of nature and the laws of physics. They saw his power over death himself. Jesus had been raised from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him. And so they ask him, will you at this time use your power to defeat Rome? Will you at this time give us back our power? You see, wanting a better future, they looked to the prosperity of their past. And often our best hopes and expectations for the future are only a repackaging, a recapitulation of the past. They want the future that God wants for them, but the only categories they have are what they have experienced long ago. But God in this passage is doing something new, something they'd never dreamed of. And Jesus says that what they need for this new work is power, but it's not the same power that they're asking for. It's not the power to conquer Caesar and to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. It's the power to conquer sin and death and to establish God's kingdom on earth. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. So church, these last couple of weeks, we've been talking about this new season for our church, this new season for Reality Carpinteria. We've talked about how it's all about Jesus. We've talked about how it's going to be rooted and established upon the word of God. But also if we are going to experience the fullness of what God has in store, then we are going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there are two equally dangerous errors that we can make when talking about the Holy Spirit. The first error that we can make is to obsess over the Spirit. So desiring an experience of power and, and, and ecstasy to have this ecstatic experience, we just obsess over the Spirit and sound doctrine goes out the window. But the Spirit loves sound doctrine. The Spirit inspired the Holy Scriptures. And He does not do anything apart from sound doctrine. He does not do anything contrary to what He wrote. But we can also err by avoiding the Spirit. Sometimes this is because we've seen abuses of, of the spirit or because our rational minds can't wrap ourselves, our minds around the things that God is doing. And so the pendulum swings too far and we just ignore the things of the spirit, but we can't obsess and we can't ignore. Our goal is to embrace a biblical understanding of the spirit. Now there are tons of hot topics about the spirit that I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not going to talk about today. 
That's for like a 10-week lecture series sometime in the future, right? We have to first understand the core. We have to understand who is the spirit and what does he do? The best place to begin when talking about the person and work of the spirit of God is to understand him in the context of the triune God. The Bible teaches and we believe that the one God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons are fully God and there is one God. Now, there are so many attempts that have been made to try to help people understand this idea of God three in one. Maybe you have heard that the Trinity is like water, right? Like H2O, it can be a liquid, it can be a solid, it can be a gas, but it's still at the molecular level, it's still H2O, right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've heard that Trinity is like an egg, right? There's the shell, there's the white, there's the yolk, three in one, right? Uh, my personal favorite is that the Trinity is like chocolate cake, right? Every slice of chocolate cake is equally chocolate cake and yet distinct from every other slice of chocolate cake, right? These, these can be helpful. These analogies can be helpful if it's helpful for you to put your mind in a space to try to understand how something can be three in one. They can be helpful. But let's be weary of, of describing the glories of the complex identity of our triune God by comparing it to something that can pass through our digestive tract. It's not the best place to start. They may be helpful, but they don't come close to telling us who God is. And while the, this, the, the Trinity may seem like a problem mathematically, the Trinity is not a problem to be solved. The Trinity is a loving God to be known. And God makes his identity known to us through the story of the Bible. And while we get glimpses of this complex identity in the Old Testament, we see it most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Take the incarnation, for instance. Jesus, the eternally existing Son of God, is sent by the Father and conceived by the Holy Spirit. We take his ministry, right? That Jesus lives to the glory of God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9.14 says concerning his death that through the eternal Spirit, Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. And in his resurrection, we know that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to know what God is like, God is like the Father who sends the Son by the Holy Spirit. If we want to know what God is like, we see him in the story of the gospel. This is the story of Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit joyfully working together in all things to bring about the Father's plan. And so when we believe this story, we're invited to make it our own story. 2 Peter 1.4 says that God granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We are made partakers of this divine nature. God's Trinitarian work 
By his work, we are invited into the life and love that the three members of the Trinity had since before the beginning of time. You see, sometimes uh, at home, when uh, my kids see Katie and I hugging, they try to squeeze in between us. And so we let them in and it's family hug time, right? And so by the work that Christ has done, by the power of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Jesus, this love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit has opened up to allow us into it. And we experience this divine nature, this divine love, what has been called the divine dance. We're invited into that. This is who God is. And the Spirit has a particular role in that work. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the Spirit is a person. He's not a thing. He's not an it. He's not like the force from Star Wars, just like always around. He is a person. In fact, the biblical authors uh, break with the rules of grammar in what they write to communicate that the spirit is a person, right? So we know that languages, other languages like Spanish and Italian, all these things, there's, there's gender to their nouns, right? You have masculine nouns, you've got feminine nouns. Well, in Greek, there's a third, it's called a neuter noun. And that is what inanimate objects get. They, they don't have this masculine or feminine. The word for spirit, Numa in the original language is a neuter noun. It should grammatically, uh, the word spirit should come with an it. But they break with grammar. And all their elementary school teachers are so sad. But God is glorified because they use the pronoun he when referring to something that shouldn't grammatically be associated with personhood. He is a personal being who relates not only to the other members of the Trinity, but relates to the world, relates to the church, and relates to you. He is fully God, equal with the Father and the Son. He's not just like tagging along. He's not the third world, the third wheel just trying to get some airtime. He's a person equal with the Father and the Son. And as a member of the Trinity, he participates in all that God is doing. Everything he does, God does as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We talked about the life and ministry of Jesus, but I want to show you that it goes all the way back. Creation, right? Who created the heavens and the earth? Father, Son, or Spirit? Yes. (laughs) Scripture teaches that all of them are creator. I can show you in the first three verses of the Bible that in the beginning, God the Father, he was there, he created the heavens and the earth, right? The, the, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God spoke. Who's the word of God? Jesus. He spoke, let there be light. All of them. I don't believe the biblical author is intended to like pen the Trinity in the first three verses, but God wrote it. They're there. That's what the, the New Testament authors are reflecting on when John says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. All that 
God does in his triune nature involves all the members of the Trinity and the spirit is included in that. But within God's work, we can appropriate particular aspects of God's work to each person of the Trinity. And while there's not some perfect formula, a helpful way to think about it is that the father plans, the son accomplishes, and the spirit applies. Look at the work of salvation. According to the Father's will, the Spirit is the one who applies the saving work of Jesus by indwelling believers and uniting us to Christ. It's in the Holy Spirit's work that sin is transferred from us to Jesus and righteousness from Jesus to us. The Spirit is the one who makes us a new creation. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of adoption who makes us children and by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives spiritual gifts to the church to glorify Jesus and to build up the body of Christ. Every good thing we have from God, we receive from the Spirit's application of Christ's work to our hearts. Think of it like this, right? Our sin deserves death. And because of that, we need to provide death but the spirit applies the death of Christ to our account paid in full, right? Jesus didn't just die so that you could live. Jesus died so that you could die because our sin requires it. But the spirit applies the death of Christ to our account. We need righteousness to enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit applies the righteousness of Christ to our account. We are mortal beings, We will physically die, but the Holy Spirit applies the resurrection of Jesus to our account and we will live. We can go on and on. We have these things in Christ because the Holy Spirit has united us to Jesus and they belong to Christ. This is why Jesus could say, it is better for him to go away. That's not spin. Jesus said it's better for him to go away so that he could send the spirit, the presence of God, no longer confined to the person of Jesus. But all who believe God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a consolation prize like, hey, 21st century Carpinteria, I'm so sorry that you didn't get to experience the physical presence of Jesus, but you're not going home empty handed. You get the spirit. It's not a consolation prize, right? The spirit is God uh, within us. As Jesus is God with us, the spirit is God within us. The Holy Spirit gives us a real encounter with the personal presence of God. And so maybe you're asking, awesome. Why don't we talk more about the spirit then and less about Jesus? After all, if they're all equal, let's give them all equal airtime. That sounds great, except for the fact that the spirit delights in illuminating Jesus. Jesus in John 16, 13 through 15 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but what he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The way we honor the spirit of God 
is not by focusing on the Spirit of God. It's by focusing on Jesus. And so the way to be fully Trinitarian and truly spiritual is to look to Jesus, to know God in Christ. Because it's in the person and work of Jesus that we encounter the Father who sends the Son empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Think of like a a stage performance, like a play, right? You got people in on the crew whose responsibility is to point the spotlight at the actors. The way to honor that person's work is not to spend the entire play looking up in the rafters and looking for the people holding the lights. It's to look at the one the lights are illuminating. The Holy Spirit loves to illuminate Jesus. At this point in the story, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples had had an experience with Jesus, but because he had not yet ascended to heaven, the Spirit had not yet come. And so Jesus instructs them to wait in Jerusalem. In a few days, they would be baptized. They would be literally immersed in the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, they would receive power. They would receive power to witness. Now, the disciples were already witnesses. They had already encountered Jesus' ministry. They witnessed his sufferings and his glory, but they still lacked understanding They were still thinking about the past. They were still wrapped up in thinking of a political kingdom for Israel and not about a heavenly kingdom for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A kingdom that invited not only Jerusalem and Judea, but also Samaria and the ends of the earth. They needed power to open their eyes to see what God was doing. And they needed to not only know about what God was doing, but they had to experience it firsthand. Church, God has not called us to know about him, but he's made a way for us to know him and experience him through faith in Jesus. The spirit makes us participants in the love of the father. And so we have to tell people about it. We've got to be witnesses because a witness is someone who not only observes something, but gives testimony. So there are two ways that the Spirit empowers our testimony. He empowers our words by sharing the gospel, and he empowers our work by transforming our lives. And we need both. So sharing the gospel is good, but if your life doesn't back it up, then why would anyone believe that there's any power in your message? Living a godly lifestyle is great, but if you never tell people about the gospel, then you don't actually invite them into the same life-changing power that they need. See, gospel proclamation must be accompanied by gospel transformation. And this doesn't come from our great effort. Transformation doesn't come by trying harder, by being better, It comes from accepting what God has provided. It's not a matter of trying or or working, but receiving, trusting that Jesus is your righteousness. You no longer have to perform. Trusting that Jesus is your acceptance. You no longer need to find it elsewhere. Trusting that Jesus is the lover of your soul. You don't need to find it in any man or any woman. You have it in Christ. Trusting that Jesus is your abundance 
killing greed and empowering generosity. Trusting that Jesus is our lives. It kills self-preservation and promotes self-sacrifice. And this requires power from the Holy Spirit. Because church, like the world, we also have a problem with power. But it's a different problem. We've been invited into the transforming power of the gospel. We have resurrection power, the power of the Holy Spirit. But often we are way too content with the power that we can provide for ourselves. We're way too content with the good that we can do for ourselves. But the power that the Spirit provides is different. See, I don't believe that power corrupts. I believe that power only gives opportunity to the corruption that's already in our hearts. Give anybody enough money, enough fame, enough status, enough authority, and they will become exactly the person they have always wanted to be. Power didn't make them that person. Power gave them the opportunity to be that person. Because power is not the problem. It's the one wielding it. And so if God is wielding the power that he has given us, then we can become something different. See, power in our hands is self-promoting. But power in the hands of God is self-sacrificial. Power in our hands is it uses others. It supplies our greed. It builds our own kingdom. Gives us opportunity to experience our sinful desires. But the power in the hands of God serves others. It's generous. It pursues the kingdom of God. And it makes us more like Jesus. Because this is the same power that Jesus himself walked in. Philippians 2, 6-11 through says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Jesus has highly, or God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is power. He was crucified and people shouted to him, you saved others, now save yourself. And he could have, but the power of God is the power to lay your life down, knowing that God can raise it up again. The power of God is self-sacrificial. Church, like the disciples, we're on the cusp of a new season. And like the disciples, we can look to the past. God has done incredible things for us. God has used you, Reality Carpinteria, in ways far beyond anyone could ever have asked or imagined. And God honors the past. It was his work. Why wouldn't he honor it? He honors the past. But like the disciples, we need to allow Jesus to shape our expectations for the future. Not to give us something better or worse, but to give us something new. To do a new work. God never moves us backward, only forward. God never retreats. He only advances. And so something, this is something that is only made possible by the Spirit of God. And like the disciples, we are going to have to wait for it. 
We are going to have to wait for the Spirit. Are we willing to wait for the Spirit to do what the Spirit has in mind to do? Because unless the Lord builds the house, all of this is in vain. All that we do is in vain. Because we can have incredible ideas. I've talked to so many of you who have amazing ideas. Things that I hope God gives us the opportunity in the future to roll out, to see happen, to see come together and bless the city of Carpinteria and bless the coastlands and bless the nations. You guys have brilliant ideas. I want to see those things happen. But are we willing to wait for the Spirit? Because we need the power of the Spirit not to build a better church. Not the power of the Spirit, not not to preach better sermons or to serve the community. We need the power that only comes from an encounter with the risen Jesus. The power to walk in the newness of life. The power to be his witnesses by sharing the gospel from that transformed life. Revival never comes from programs or great ideas. But as God's word is proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, then God's kingdom power breaks into our lives, transforms us, and bears witness to Jesus by our enjoying him, by our declaration of the good news, and by our demonstration of his love and grace to the world. That is what I believe God wants to do at Reality Carpinteria. He wants to invite us into it, but only as long as we are ready and willing for the spirit to do that work in us and through us. So let's pray to that regard. Father, this is your church. You established this church. You built this church. You have grown this church and led this church through great seasons. You have led this church through sorrowful seasons, and you have never stopped leading this church. And so God, we ask that you Holy Spirit would empower this people for this season that you have brought us into, that you would shine a light on Jesus through what is preached, that you would shine a light on Jesus through the works that are accomplished, that you would shine a light on Jesus through the work that you do in this place. And God, whatever you have in mind to do, we say yes and amen. Have your way in us. Holy Spirit, illuminate Jesus in this place. We want Christ to be seen as the most beautiful, the most glorious, the most wonderful thing in the coastlands. And we need you to do that. Include us, Lord, however you see fit. We love you. Thank you for teaching us. Help us to respond by truly believing that everything we need, we have in Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.